0: who is giving basically Peter's gospel account of Jesus. And um, so we saw then the first part, the servant who rules, that Mark kind of presents Jesus as the servant who has authority, who has authority over the religious leaders, who has authority over demons, who has authority over nature itself. And uh, then there's Peter's declaration that he's the Messiah and the transfiguration, And uh, then he turned his face towards Jerusalem, and last week we saw this this ruler who serves, that his nature of his authority is different than that of the world, and uh, that God's heavenly authority looks very different. And so we come to this last week of Jesus' life. It's known as the Passion Week. And uh, this is right before his uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Mark 11. So if you have a Bible, we'll uh, start there. But let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for the testimony of Jesus. Father, that we can look back through human history and see this clear message that you did indeed send your son as the rescuer, as the redeemer, and who is now the rightful Lord and King of the universe. And Father, I pray that we would come to know not just the message, but God, but we would come to know you. God, that we would not just come to know a concept, but God, we would come to know the Creator and Father himself, you, Jesus. So, Lord, we pray Lord, for our hearts to just be warm to your word, let us hear from you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, the Gospel of John, when we look in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus going in and out in this last week of Jerusalem five times, Um, and uh, they were staying just outside of Jerusalem in Bethany, and this might have been in Lazarus' house. Uh, but this this is kind of the, this is a map or a uh, slide. Anyway, uh, whatever that is, it's a picture. I don't even know what time frame it's from, but there it is. There's the Holy Land, there's the Temple Mount, and uh, that's the, the Muslim Temple Mount, and on its footprint is the old temple, so that's where it would have been. But anyway, that green pasture there with the olive trees is the Mount Mount of Olives, and just beyond that is Bethany, and that's probably where Jesus and his disciples were staying there kind of towards right there at the end of the last week. And uh, from the view of the Mount of Olives, this would be your view. right there it's a little colorized and that's not a river that runs through there just from the colorization that pulled out that's a green kind of pasture there so it's not a river but this would be kind of the view from the mount of olives you would be looking upon the temple and the city of jerusalem and so this would be the place that uh, mark chooses to highlight three times of their travels through the mount olives mount of olives Mark reduces these five trips into three trips and three lessons that Jesus gives His disciples in the Mount of Olives. And that's the the three little stories that we're going to look at this morning and kind of draw out the significance there. So in Mark 11, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. Oh. Did I read that right? All right. Verse 4. And when they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside of the street and untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they, and they let them go. And they, told, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and they sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread palm branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus grabbing this donkey and coming into Jerusalem on that road there, and the disciples and the crowd are putting palm branches this promised messiah is now on his way to enter the gates of Jerusalem man that happened last week there it is whatever that is let's not have that happen again all right that's me that's totally me i need a new i need that mic anyway the palms were not a symbol of peace and pleasantness as this kind of Scene may suggest, or that may you may have learned in Sunday school, uh, they were a symbol of the Maccabe, Maccabean revolt that happened in their near Jewish history, and that that revolt was by political revolutionaries. These palm branches were signifying the expectation of a military victory of their king over the occupying Romans. Where's that, Mike? There we go. So these palm branches weren't just of kind of peace. They were like there's an expectation that this Messiah is now going to go do something with Rome. And there was this uh, prophecy in Zechariah that many of them knew. It says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey. And in their kind of understanding, they thought the Messiah was going to come with kind of earthly domination just like any other king on the planet that they've seen, and in that same manner. Uh, But Jesus was going down a different road, a Messiah that would redeem his people through his own suffering, not coming in as just another conquering military force with a supernatural strong arm. No, because of their enslavement, their enslavement went beyond the physical condition. God was sending a Messiah to deal with the broken human heart that was under the influence of fallen dark powers, and it was eternally broken. And He came to deal with a death, a death blow to the enemy in a way that he least expects it. He couldn't come in a way that he was anticipating because the enemy would have thwarted it. And he tried numerous times along the way and even on Jesus' life. But he's coming to die he's not coming to conquer as a human would and according to mosaic law a sacrificial lamb for passover was to be selected and set apart on the previous monday to be sacrificed on friday many theologians believe that jesus entered on this monday in this triumphal entry And that Jesus is indeed, Mark is pointing, that Jesus is indeed this sacrificial lamb that was selected during his very public and messianic triumphal entry. So what's the lesson from this first Mount of Olives experience? That the people think they know and understand God's plan, but God fulfills it marvelously in divine fashion, in his way. Hundreds of God's prophets said then, and many lived hundreds of years before Christ, prophesied a Messiah that would heal humanity's brokenness and fracturedness and bring redemption. He came to not just take earthly control through force, but he needed to heal the spiritual wound that sin caused and allowed access to anyone through him. He needed... He needed it not just to be a human dominion, but he needed to allow humanity, no matter what nation, no matter what tribe, no matter what your background, no matter what you came from, allow access to be restored and brought back into wholeness with the God that made them. And so as he enters Jerusalem, in that kind of chaos, he brings divine order. He turns over the tables in the temple, and he brings kind of some chaos in order to bring some order. He cleanses the temple. He approaches their greed and power, the kind of religious elite, and he's calling back and restoring order that God's house should be a prayer house of prayer for the nations. He tells some parables, and then they try to test Jesus on which is the greatest commandment. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament. And this week, I just found this out. This was interesting that there's actually 613 uh, characters in the Ten Commandments. And so, therefore, and there, there was a lot of ensuing commands that God gave. Well, mankind made up hundreds more to make up that 613 to match the letters in the law. So they just kind of, just through man's tradition, just kind of kept adding to kind of match God's perfect way. That We needed to add a few more hundred to kind of get to that 613 mark because that would be a perfect reflection of God's law. Anyway, that was kind of a new, a new nugget. Anyway, that's free of charge this morning, everybody. Thank you very much. Anyway, so... But Jesus reduces it down to two. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love people in the same way. These are all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So then we find Jesus going through Mount Olives the second time. Find this in Mark 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Again, they're looking at the temple. They're looking at the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, "See that no one leads you astray. The understanding that these disciples uh, had, they were not looking for a second coming as we might expect today with our kind of American lens. They were firmly convinced that Jesus was the long-expected Jewish Messiah, and that there, and in their lifetime he would defeat Israel's enemies and set up his glorious kingdom of God in which Israel would once again be the most prominent nation in the world. And so that's why he leads off. See to it that no one misleads you. I'm going to try to answer your questions with the understanding that you have, but there's some larger things going on in ways that you may not get. So Jesus here talks about there being wars and rumors of wars, that nation will rise up against nation, and it goes on for a good bit. We're not going to get into the fine details. However, I will, we'll get there. Jesus is trying to answer their specific questions through their understanding they have. And so in the midst of all this, Jesus says this line, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. It's necessary that it must take place. It's the nature of things. Jesus knows human nature and the total depravity of the human condition is the root of all war. And that it's the nature in the case that makes war inevitable. These convulsions of wars or Rivalries or famines or are not, they've not been pre-ordered by divine decree, but yet they arise as the inevitable consequence of human depravity. They are the natural result of human nature separated from God and ruled by self-interest. So let's not blame God for what mankind is actually doing. Evil men And women are actually doing. So here, Jesus is, they're looking at the temple, and he speaks to this temple. That's the first thing. He said, not one stone will be left upon another. It's like, man, this is crazy. This is the picture of the temple. This is like eight football fields put together. This was massive. This took generations to build. This was the centerpiece of the Jewish religion at the time. This was a rebuild of David's original or Solomon's temple, and that's when they came back from the exile, they built this, and this is a massive structure. Jesus says not one stone will be left in another. Well, in 40 years from that, some trace it to that year, I think it's like, well, I don't know, sometimes when it like perfectly works out, it's like, man, that's either God or a lazy commentator. Anyway, but some some submit that it's 40 years from that year, which in a Jewish understanding is a generation, that the Jerusalem was sieged upon from 68 to, well, middle of 67 and a half to 70 Uh The emperor Nero surrounds Jerusalem and lays siege to it, starves them out, cuts off the supply lines. Over a million people die. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, talks about this. It's the biggest tragedy they've ever even heard of up to that point. And again, millions are dying. And there's this judgment on kind of like the nation of Israel, the house of Israel in 70 AD, and this kind of demonized emperor, he walks into the holy of holies and kind of desecrates, desecrates the holy of holies. But it's interesting that there's this, this, it was a permanent end to the Jewish sacrificial system, which is interesting. It's just never been revived ever since. It was like a permanent end. And not that the promise to the nation of Israel has ended. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that there was just kind of a judgment on the nation. And the temple has never been rebuilt. Now, he goes in and kind of talks about when's the end. When's the end? And it's interesting. It's a common question that we kind of still ask today. Every generation kind of asks it. When's the end? It's funny Almost every generation thinks they're the generation that it's the end, right? You know, it's like, well, it's our generation. Man, it's never been worse than now. So it's interesting. There's been kind of date selection along the – that's a whole interesting kind of thing to kind of uh, – anyway, people have picked dates, specific dates. I remember I grew up in Denver. I was at Elitch Gardens one time, which is kind of the Six Flags or the whatever – the worlds of fun. Yeah, that's what's here. The little worlds of fun. Anyway, just kidding. So um, so we were there, and anyway, people had dates on their shirts, and we were kind of like, hey, what's that? And they're like, man, this is the day Jesus is coming back. And it's like, oh, really? Can I get your phone number? You know, because I wanted to call them the day after and just say, hey, how you doing? You know, it's like, <laughs> do it. hey, everything's going to be all right, just like Jesus. Hey, don't worry. Don't you fret. He's still in control. But anyway, that's kind of a common thing about human nature. Well, there's really, uh, just just to sum up, I mean, this is kind of a big ticket item when it comes to Jesus and the Olivet Discourse. This is uh, There's a parallel in Matthew, sorry, I'm popping, uh, Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, it's a little bit more of a detailed throw out on this kind of response of Jesus. But really, historically, there's kind of if I can do this really quickly, there's just been kind of three kind of camps when it comes to this thing which is called eschatology or the end times. And uh, so there's a thing, uh, there's one camp called the premillennial camp. And they're just saying there, the millennial battle is yet to come. Pretty simple. And uh, they would kind of view certain scriptures in kind of certain ways to kind of uh, detail out, hey, when's that millennial kind of thing happening? And so there's some signs to look for. Then there's the ah, millennial. Ah, millennial. That's not talking about millennial generation. Anyway, so there's the ah, millennial. Uh, they kind of have a view that we're in the middle of this kind of millennial battle and that Jesus will one day come and kind of finish it off. Uh, and then there's kind of the post-millennial Uh, And that would be kind of a camp like Calvin. That would be a lot of things happened at that fall, that temple happening uh, that a lot of kind of revelation was kind of speaking to. So not that kind of like Jesus came back then, but just that a lot of the things that revelation was kind of speaking to happened about that 70 A.D. temple seizure. Anyway, what's interesting Historically, and then there's the fourth one, which was kind of a new one, uh, just a real sideline. Um, this is kind of boring to you. I'm just kind of feel like I'm just kind of like, just rambling. Anyway, there's a fourth one that came about a, about 150 years ago. And if you've kind of heard the Left Behind series, uh, that's kind of rapture centered and just kind of like, uh, very, anyway, it's very kind of reduced minimalization of the pre anyway. Uh, It's just kind of bad theology. So anyway, historically, there's just kind of, there's, there's there's three kind of camps. Now, I will say, each camp has to elevate certain scriptures and kind of ignore other ones. Every camp. And it's just kind of funny along the way. So it's good to kind of know. It's good to kind of dig in, dig in. What does the scripture say? And kind of know for yourself. Just kind of think for yourself, and not just kind of regurgitate. Oh well, my pastor, bop bop bop. It's like no. Well, dig into this. All right, you should know. Um, you should know what the what the what the options are. But just know that there's kind of blind spots to each. And it's a real fulfillment of. And I kind of lead people a lot to this. What what Jesus says here. In Mark, it says, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even angels, the angels in heaven, nor the Son, not even Jesus, but only the Father. But here's what Jesus says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Right? So the lesson is don't be led astray. Live ready, but build for the long haul. That's one of the things the church, I think, of the last 100 years has kind of twisted this message and tried to scare people into the kingdom. But it's like, no, 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 you need to kind of count the cost, the weight of being a disciple of Jesus, that it's about being living an allegiant life before him, that, man, when he leads me down a road, man, I'm going because I trust him with my life. And it's to live ready, but build for the long haul. I don't know when. And it could be tomorrow morning. Are you ready? Man, we should be. But then it's also looking looking at it as a steward, that God has given us this life to steward and to build and to grow what has been handed to us so that it grows and flourishes through our life, so that our children's children receives blessing. And lastly, Jesus' third visit. Alright, we're pretty good on time. I'm lacking hydration though. Could you let me have that water over there? Beautiful. Thank you much. I'm a mess. Microphone. Hydration. Dwarf, get your act together. Anyway. It's beautiful. All right, Jesus' third visit during the week of his passion was the night he was betrayed. And that evening began with the Last Supper. We're going to celebrate communion here in a minute. But that evening began with the Last Supper in Jerusalem and ended in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, Mark 14. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, First, Jesus said the one that will betray him, and now he, like at the Last Supper, he's like, hey, one of you betray me. Okay, great. Well, now they're on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus opens it up, and he's like, you all are going to betray me. You all are going to walk away. And you're like, man, I thought it was just one. Now it's all of us? Like what happened from dinner to now that we're all Indicted, but no, Jesus is like, no, it's to fulfill a prophecy that we find in kind of uh, Zechariah 13, 7, just this kind of like, hey, when they strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. Peter did not wait on God, obviously, in his response, and he forecast in his mind what was going to happen and where the test would come. I know where this test is going to come, and I'm going to proclaim my... Allegiant trust in you, where that test is going to come, but it it came in a way it didn't expect it. And he says, "I'm going to lay down my life for your sake." Peter declares. It was honest, but it was misinformed. Jesus answered him, "The rooster shall crow thro, uh, shall crow shall not crow till you have denied me three times." This came of Jesus having a deeper knowledge of Peter than Peter had of his even self. Jesus knew Peter. He had walked with him. He knows how he's wired. And even in his mistakes, even in his foolish declarations that he does at times and especially towards the end, even in his failings that Jesus foresees happening in his life, Jesus always restores him. Jesus heals him. Jesus has this joy in expecting because he knows what Peter's going to go do to see his kingdom grow. God is calling for a deep, loyal, deeply loyal, I will be with you to the very end no matter what kind of family. And that's the kind of trust and loyalty that he's kind of looking for in his disciples, to trust and obey him. And so, they go to verse uh, Mark 14, 32. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And it's this, you know, space in Jerusalem was quite tight. So they didn't have much uh, property for gardens for, you know, to go to a private place. So wealthy people had private gardens that you could kind of go to. So Jesus had to have, had a wealthy friend that that he had access to his kind of garden. So they they would have, they kind of had this, this access, this privilege. And he went there uh, to fight this kind of lonely battle. So Gethsemane means olive oil press. That's what that word means, olive oil press. And it kind of speaks of suffering, being pressed. And he's entering this garden not to hide. Himself from death, but to prepare for it by an extended time of intimate prayer with his Father. Jesus would be hard pressed by thoughts of his own impending destruction. It goes on, he says, He said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, it's just the same thing. Father, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came. And he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will. And yet again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So here's this little garden story, this battle, this heavy tension battle, this sober moment in Jesus' story. We're right before, you know that he's going to be betrayed. Judas has left, he's gone from the group. The, the loyal disciples are there, they're on the watch for Judas. It's interesting, why a garden? Human history began in a garden, and so did human sin. And for the redeemed, the whole human story will climax in a garden city where there will be no sin. But here in between those two gardens is this garden where man failed, and the garden where God reigns is Gethsemane. The garden where Jesus accepted the cup of the Father's hand of God's wrath for human sin. That's the cup it's Jesus is referring to. And I don't think we'd ever know kind of the depths of agony and sin. In one version it, in one gospel it, it's like almost like it's he's crying as if he's crying tears of blood. I don't think we'd ever know kind of the pain that our Savior endured that night alone to express His love for, our, for us, sinners. But He says, if it were possible, which means if it were in accordance to your will, since God could do anything, in one sense it was possible, but it was not the will of the Father. The hour had long that had long been anticipated by Jesus has now finally come. Jesus' flesh didn't want to do what the Father wanted him to do, and yet he had to compel himself to go on. That's one of the reasons why Jesus experiences all of all, all of human like even in that moment when he could have just like bailed, could have just said nope. I heard from God, I went away into the kind of garden by myself. Hey, Jesus, we're like really trusting you, what's coming out of this garden, right, in your relationship with the Father. Jesus could have changed the game plan and could have made something up. But no, Jesus just in his obedience to the Father just compels himself to say, but not my will, but your will be done. He did it by casting himself upon the Father's enabling strength. And that's what his prayer is doing. It's like I'm throwing myself onto your strength to do what you're asking me to do. And there are many times in my own life that I've drawn on this source of prayer with Jesus and the Father, faced with circumstances and situations that I know what I need to do, but in my flesh I'm not wanting to do it, but I compel myself to do the right obedient thing. And it's the strength of God that meets you in that moment to say, God, I'm going to do the right thing. And boom, God's strength meets you right there in that moment. In that resolution, God makes up the difference every time. And so have the courage to take all things before the Father. If there's a situation that you don't like or if there's a relational offense or if there's ideas that you don't like that God has or His, His Word has, like man, take it to the mattresses with the Lord. Say, God, I don't understand this. Go to the Father and get His mind on the matter. And then, like Christ, we compel ourselves to do the right obedient thing before us because we know the heart of the Father. And lastly... In this kind of story, we have these resting disciples here in this moment of greatest need of Jesus' disciples, Jesus' crew, this motley bunch that he kind of picked up from kind of the streets and trained and poured his life into them. It was like in that very moment, they're falling asleep. He says, remain here and keep watch. That word remain comes with... Yo, keep watch. It has, a little, it has a little emphasis, you know. It has a little sauce on it. It is key, immediate obedience due to the urgency of the moment. And so in one sense, they obeyed because they remained there, but the sad part is that they remained asleep. Half-hearted obedience. They were with him, but they were asleep. And that may be a call to us, even here in our generation. See, they were to keep watch for Judas. The soldiers come in for him, but they slept. And we can mark it down that the disciple, believer, who is not alert to the enemy's strategies and attacks, will be asleep as to what God is doing. So there's these three walkthroughs through Mount of Olives, and it's interesting, three huge different lessons along the way. Jesus is trying to, in these last hours, pour all that he knows about the Father and his ways into his disciples, and in that last meal that they had together, they had communion, and Jesus is establishing a new covenant with them, a covenant that is made by blood, much like the covenant made by blood in the Old Testament. But this is a new covenant that God was making with mankind through Jesus. And so this morning, we want to do communion together. And how we do communion here is uh, you're all invited uh, to come and we'll just kind of come down the center, grab your communion elements, touch the, grab the one you touch, amen, praise the Lord, and then kind of see yourself kind of over to the side, back to your seat, and to hold on to your communion elements, and then we'll take those together. Awesome? All right, so let's... Thank you, Lord, for your shed blood and your broken body. In Jesus' name. Lord, Father, thank you, God, for Jesus. And God, I just thank you for the testimony of the disciples that, Lord, that they were fractured, they were broken, and yet you chose them to put your Holy Spirit in, Lord, and you chose them to give the greatest message of all time into their trusted hands, Lord, they didn't do it perfectly every time. But Father, you assembled a healthy family, God, that would carry your message of restoration and revival to the world. Lord, you call a people to, the Lord, not only be sons and daughters of your family, but, God, to be agents of restoration, of healing, of peacemaking. Lord, of bringing, uh, Lord, human flourishing. God, wherever we go, Lord, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our families, over our children. Father, we pray that, Lord, we would be your people in this hour, in this generation. Father, because we're filled with your spirit, and we are your people in your family because of the covenant that you made with your shed blood on the cross. Lord, we thank you that you're that you did this there's nothing that we could have done that earns a place in your family but by simply believing you and giving our whole heart and allegiance to you to say yes to you Jesus so lord if there's anyone here that is yet to say god i give you my whole heart my whole life have your way lord you we know who we are right now i pray that god would that there would be just faith in this room right now to say, God, in you, I can trust my whole life. In you, I can trust my future. In you, God, I can trust my emotions, my feelings. God, what I think about things. God, I entrust my past. Lord, that brokenness. Lord, the pain, the trauma, the hurt, the bitterness, the, the betrayal. Lord, all of that, Lord, we can bring to you Lord, to heal in a moment. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here, Lord, just break, give it to them. In Jesus' name, God, I give you my whole heart. Do with it as you please. And your son and daughter, thank you for dying for my sin. And God, I turn to you to say, train me and equip me to be your son and daughter. In Jesus' name. So, Lord, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org see you next time on the City Life Podcast.